You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library's Writers Live series. I am Vivian Fisher, manager of this beautiful African American department. It is my pleasure and honor this evening to introduce our guest speaker. Dr. Janet Dort Bell is a communication strategist and management consultant with a multimedia background, as well as experience in policy advocacy, strategic planning, fund development media training and education. She is a social justice advocate, activist, executive coach, and motivational speaker. Among her many accomplishments are an Emmy for Outstanding Individual Achievement at WCBS-TV affiliate in Washington, D.C., and programming for National Public Radio. She was chairperson of the District of Columbia Commission for Women and represented the district at the International Conference of Women in Nairobi, Kenya. Bell established the Derek Bell Lecture Series on Race in American Society at the New York University School of Law, now in its 23rd year. And I just want to say that we were very grateful for the service that her husband gave us in terms of being a, um, a scholar and a civil rights activist. Along with other lead donors, she helped establish in 2012 the Derrick Bell Fund for Excellence at the University of Pittsburgh's School of Law, Professor Bell's alma mater, to honor his memory and legacy. She has also endowed the Janet Bell Scholarship at Baruch College, where she earned her master's degree. She is also the founder and president of LEAD, Intergenerational Solutions, Inc., a nonprofit dedicated to developing intergenerational leadership as social change agents. She serves on the boards of Teaching Matters, Cancer Care, the Southern Center for Human Rights, and Women's Media Center. And she is an ordained elder serving at First Presbyterian of Brooklyn, an inclusive and diverse Christian community where all are welcome. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Janet Dort Bell to Baltimore and the Pratt Library. Thank you so much. Thank you for that very kind introduction. It's so wonderful to be here. I came to this library a couple times with my late husband, Derek Bell, and I have great fond memories. And so it was really a pleasure and an honor to be invited here. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around, turn me around, turn me around. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. I'm gonna keep on walking, keep on talking, marching up to freedom land. During the Civil Rights Movement, 
African Americans led the fight to free this country from the vestiges of slavery and Jim Crow. African American women played significant roles at all levels of the civil rights movement, yet often they remain invisible to the larger public. While some African-American women led causes and organizations, such as Dorothy Height of Delta Sigma Theta and the National Council of Negro Women, others did not have titles or official roles. They did not stand on ceremony. They simply did the work that needed to be done without expectation of personal gain, often unnamed and unappreciated. African-American women helped to construct the cultural architecture for change. Women, such as the crusading anti-lynching journalist Ida B. Wells Barnett and Rosa Parks, were also anti-rape activists. They tried to protect black women from the white Southern tradition of droit de seigneur, which came from a feudal uh, tradition. It literally means the right of the Lord. In the antebellum, and Jim Crow South. That meant black women's bodies and lives did not matter. White men abused and raped black women at will and without punishment. African-American women leaders and activists addressed the most important and volatile issues of their times, rape, segregation, lynching, education, economic justice. People who lived and worked in the South in the heat of the Civil Rights Cauldron were clearly the heart and soul of the movement. Their heroic actions, often putting themselves and their families in harm's way, were without equal. As servant leaders, African-American women were rooted in their desire first to serve their communities rather than gaining power for themselves. They were not servile. I'd like to tell you a little bit about my personal story. My mother was born in rural Arkansas, in a place that's so small you cannot even find it on the map. It was 100 miles away from Little Rock, Arkansas. She could not go to high school because school for black children ended at age grade, and the nearest high school was 100 miles away in Little Rock. Her two older sisters were able to go to high school, so my mother never had formal education, but she was self-educated, and I always say she was the smartest person I ever knew. She, one of the things that she did in the Civil Rights Movement was she bought me a car to do voter registration and things in the South a car that was better than anything she had ever owned. Now, this was a major sacrifice because my mother worked as a maid in hotels and motels in Erie, Pennsylvania, where I was born, where she met my father. My father was born in rural Georgia. He was born outside of Griffin, Georgia. Last week I spoke in Atlanta, and I said, and some people sort of kind of heard of Griffin, but I said, no, he was born outside of Griffin, Georgia in 1898. And he was taken out of school, as all the black children were, for agricultural needs, cotton picking, what have you. My father 
technically went to the third grade, but he was functionally illiterate. So I say, of course, I would, be, I would become an educator and a communication specialist because it meant so much to my parents that I would do that. In the, this is my mother. Isn't she gorgeous? Willie Mae Neal. Love that woman. This is my grandmother, Sophronia McKnight. Sophronia McKnight was all of four foot eight inches tall. And she lived on a farm, as I said, in rural Arkansas. And she, four foot eight, less than 100 pounds, could drag a 100 pound sack of cotton through the field in 120 degree heat. I always say, that's the kind of stock and legacy I have to live up to every day. My grandmother, fierce. And in the country, you would have your shotguns, right? And so every week, the young insurance men, all white, usually young, would come by and collect the premiums on the Friday or whenever. And one day, a young man came and apparently did not get the memo, you do not mess with Sophronia McKnight's daughters. She had three daughters, no sons. And so he came in, and he fondled one of her daughters, my aunts, in front of my grandmother. Well, my grandmother, four foot eight, 100 pounds, calmly walks over to the gun rack, picks up a shotgun, and shoots it and misses young man's ear intentionally because she was a sharpshooter, as was my mother and as was I, about an inch from his ear. Well, he was not totally ridiculous and stupid. He left. So my grandparents sent their daughters away because they thought surely they would be lynched. But they refused to succumb, as my parents would say, do not take low to anybody. They would rather die than, than be slaves or to be anything less than first-class human beings, first-class citizens. Fabulous. So I should say this. About, so a week went by, no one came, nothing happened. Another week went by, nothing happened. Eventually, another young white insurance man came by and said, Aunt Sophronia, as if nothing had ever happened, my grandmother lived to be in her 80s. This is my encounter with the Klan. I was about, oh, this was about 1966, 67, so I was 20, 21 years old, and I was doing voter registration in southern Virginia. And I could have gotten my full self killed, but obviously I did not. Uh, I went there, and I was staying with people in the community. And you have to remember the times of terrorism. The people who lived in these areas were there all the time. Some of us, maybe from other parts of the South, maybe from places like Erie, Pennsylvania, Ohio, we parachuted in. We were not living in constant danger, constant danger excuse me, like these people were. And so if you, read, if you can read the sign more closely, it says, a United Klan rally, good preaching, country music, the white public only. I took this sign off a telephone pole, and I've kept it all these, all these many years to remind me of the courage and bravery of those people who live there. 
I want to talk a little bit about some women who are not in my book before I get to the nine women I, I interviewed. Septima Clark, some people pronounce it Septima. Anyone familiar with her? She started citizenship schools, right? And, uh, and she worked primarily in the Sea Islands, Sea Islands off Georgia and South Carolina. So to teach in these schools, she eventually lost her teaching license from the state and her pension because she would not give up her, her membership in the NAACP. She got her pension back many, many years later. Her story was not unusual. Ella Baker, we all know Ella Baker. Ella Baker worked for almost all of the major civil rights organizations at the time as the, as the inspiration, as they, as they tell me, uh, for the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC. Ella Baker was called Fundi because that was a, a, that's a Swahili word that means someone who passes knowledge down from generation to generation. Ella Baker, there's a center named after her from California, but she was absolutely a remarkable woman. And everybody I know who knew her in SNCC calls her Ms. Baker. Nobody calls her Ella. Jean Fairfax is someone who's very who's little known. She again worked for the major civil rights organizations of the time, but she also worked for the American Friends Service Committee. And the reason I wanted to point her out that in Prince Edward County, Virginia, which is in Southern Virginia, when the schools were supposedly desegregated, Prince Edward County refused to desegregate their schools. They closed their public schools for five years, which meant that the black children had no schools to go to, but they set up private academies with public funds for the white children. Jean Fairfax uh, was, did outplacement. She came and she sent children to places. Now, can you imagine you're 15, 16, 17, about to graduate or, go, or about to go to high school or what have you, and you are, have to go far away from your family to pursue your education. But she sent these children to safe havens, and I, around the country, I, I meet people who are Miss Fairfax kids. And people are startled, especially young people, and they say, no, they didn't close the school for five years. And I go, yes, they did. You can look that one up. Maida Springer was a, she was, she was, she lived in Pittsburgh primarily, but what she did was she got involved in the labor movement, and she set the groundwork for the AFL-CIO's involvement in the liberation movements in Africa. This is a very big deal. There are a couple books written about her, but about, as with all these other women, you can do a, almost a whole library on them. So that's Major Springer. Molly Moon. I put her in there because Molly Moon, I always laugh and say, Molly Moon is bougie like me. I met Molly Moon because she was the founder of the National Urban League Guild. And you look at her, I call her a stealth radical because what she did was during the time we were we were trying to figure out what to call ourselves. Now, we'd been called names that were less pleasant than this. So were we colored, black, Negro, African-American? What were we called? And there was a lot of disagreement among people in the diaspora. And so Molly Moon became a bridge over that. And Molly Moon said, oh, well, you know, African-American, that's very specific. 
and that incorporates everybody. Not everyone totally agreed with her, but that's one thing that she did. The other thing that she, she in the 40s, she, hus her, she and her husband, Henry Lee Moon, who was the director of communications for the NAACP, now they were civil rights royalty, National Urban League, NAACP, they started interracial gatherings in New York City, and you think, well, that's not the South, but it's still segregated. And so that's one of the things that she did. And uh, Molly Moon was a great mentor for me. Fannie Lou Hamer, sick and tired of being sick and tired. We know that. Fannie Lou Hamer, a sharecropper uh, like, like my grandmother. My grandmother and gra my grandparents had 35 acres, and they were also sharecroppers. They never got their 40 acres in a, a mule. Fannie Lou Hamer spoke passionately at the 1964 Democratic Convention representing the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And she was so powerful that LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, called a fake news conference so that he could take attention from, from her while she, while she was speaking. He said, who is that little woman speaking? He might have said something else because LBJ was a little profane. But he said, who is that woman speaking? So Fannie Lou Hamer was very powerful. I knew she was powerful even before that because I saw her speak with, maybe around the same time, she was addressing a rally in Lowndes County, Alabama. And Stokely Carmichael, who later became Sekou Toure, was speaking, and he was using language she didn't quite approve of. She's a very fine Christian lady. So he kept talking. So Mrs. Hamer came up, and he's like way up here, and she's way down there, and she said, she said, Soakley, stop talking like that. Shut your mouth. I don't, know the, don't remember the exact words. And he said, yes, ma'am. And all I could think of, ooh, that's a powerful woman. And so she was. Winston and Dovey Hudson lived and worked in Leake County, Mississippi. Uh, Winston was active in the NAACP, so she had a formal position. But informally, what they did was they... They did voter registration. They did, they did a lot of work. There's a book about them called Mississippi Harmony. You can read more about them. But they represent an, another group of women who worked so hard in the civil rights movement and who are unacknowledged. The Montgomery bus boycott, 1955-56. Why did I include that and want to mention that? Because it is a microcosm of African-American women leaders and leadership roles. Joanne Robinson was a teacher, professor at the local black college, and she was also active in the Women's Political Council, and one of the things they did, now people wonder, how, did, how was the bus boycott successful? It was not successful just based on oratory. It was successful because people were strategists and visionaries, and they thought ahead. They knew there would come a time when someone would sit down to stand up. And so when Mrs. Parks did that, they were ready, and they ran off all of these things on the mimeograph machines. But before that, they had arranged alternate means of transportation so people could get to work. And those people who couldn't get transportation walked. They walked for over a year. And I tell people, we can't get people to walk to the store these days. And these folks walked in the heat and in, under great threats of terror for over a year. 
Joanne Robinson, Claudette Colvin, do, have we heard of her? Claudette Colvin was a teenager at that time. She actually did the same thing Mrs. Parks did a few months before. But because she was a teenager and considered unruly, she was not considered the right symbol for the movement they were trying to build. I don't blame them for, finding, for trying to find someone who would represent the movement in a way that would move the movement forward. But Claudette Colvin, unfortunately, I tried to track her down to interview her, and she died a few years before I, I could do that. And, but she, years later, after this, after Mrs. Parks was, became the symbol, she said that she thought Mrs. Parks was the right person. Partly, Rosa Parks was considered by everyone to be quite upright and dignified, all of which you already know. She was the secretary of the local NAACP branch. You may not know that. But the other thing that most people don't know is that she was trained as a community organizer and as an activist. She went to Highlander Folk Center in Tennessee, as did many civil rights workers, which is one of the few places where interracial gatherings could, could train together. They were against the law. Highlander was always under, th under threat from the authorities, but Highlander uh, proceeded anyway. Georgia Gilmore. Now, I told you a little bit about my background. Georgia Gilmore was a cook. And what she did, she and some friends, but she in particular, started the Club from Nowhere. And what they did was they raised money to support the boycott. This was a threat to their livelihood and their life. They called it the Club from Nowhere because they didn't want to be so identified, but most people knew who they were. But she and her, she and the people she worked with persisted and they raised money to support the movement. So I'm always saying that when, you, when you're movement oriented, not just personal oriented, you find ways to move social justice forward. Georgia Gilmore did that. Rosa Parks, the Rosa Parks you may not know. See that, that sign on the Highlander? So she was at Highlander Center, so I showed that. And that's the Rosa Parks, the young Rosa Parks that most people think of. I should mention, as secretary of the NAACP, she didn't take dictation. She might have done that. I don't know that. What she also did was she investigated uh, lynchings. She investigated rapes. She did things like that. That was a very serious position. And this is Rosa Parks just, uh, just before she died. God bless her. Now, Daisy Bates, little uh, head of the NAACP, in Little Rock, Arkansas, integration of Central High School. These students are called the Little Rock Nine. But remember, these are individual students. These are young people. These are people about the age of those marvelous students in Parkland. I lift them up all the time. They, they range age from, the oldest one was Ernie Green, who, who was a senior and who graduated, was the first to graduate from Central high school. There's a young woman in there, uh, Elizabeth Eckford. On the day when they were supposed to go to the school, Elizabeth Eckford's family was not notified that they had changed the, the location where they were supposed to meet. So eight people met with Daisy Bates and the security, the local police, the uh, National Guard, whoever, to escort them in the school. Elizabeth Eckford family did not have a phone. So she alone walked into school, and there are pictures of this child 
walking through hostile crowds. Not hostile children, but hostile adults yelling at her, shouting profanities, doing horrible things. That, that was something that traumatized her for the rest of her life. Mamie Till Bradley Mobley, whose son Emmett Till was killed. Emmett Till either whistled or said bye baby or said something to some white woman at a store and later that night at his home where he was visiting with his uncle or grandfather, he was visiting from Chicago, there was a knock on the door. It was Ku Klux Klan. They took him out, they mutilated, and they killed this child. And when they found his body, as well, they also found bodies of other people who had been killed. This was a typical occurrence in the South. And I talk about the race, the terrorism that we had, because people keep trying to divert that to, there were no Muslims involved in this. These were white Christians who were committing these crimes, acts of violence. This is Mrs. Mamie Chill Bradley Mobley with her son, and that's her after her son was killed. And I'm sparing you the open casket, although the open casket is very, very powerful. And I think that she made the right decision to display that because we would rather look the other way. But there's sometimes you really must look into the face of evil, of what evil does. Constance Baker Motley was the primary female attorney uh, with the NACP uh, LDF, Legal Defense Fund. And she, there she is, and she always looked like that. She was the most dignified person at all. And when, people, and when, she, argue, and when she would argue cases, People would come from miles around. They'd walk, they'd take carriages, they would do whatever. To see that motley woman argue, first of all, she was unusual. She's a female attorney, and she's there holding her own with all the men. She integrated, she litigated for the University of Georgia and the University of Mississippi. And I think you know the other two people in that picture, Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King. Now... The women in my book that I interviewed, the nine oral histories. The first one is Leah Chase. Leah Chase and her husband, Dookie Chase, ran restaurant in, and she still runs the restaurant in New Orleans. Some of you might have been there, Dookie Chase Restaurant. But the reason she's in there is like Georgia Gilmore. She, she believed that cooking was, was her contribution. So in her restaurant in New Orleans, she provided a safe haven for civil rights workers to come to integrated groups. Remember, and I have to remind young people in particular, that was against the law. Their business could have been shut. They, harm could have come to them. But as she says, you know, maybe it's because New Orleans has a little bit of, uh, you know, laissez le bon temps rouler, let the good times roll, that things didn't really happen to her. This is Mrs. Chase later on. And I interviewed Mrs. Chase. She was about 90 years old, and she was absolutely phenomenal. I interviewed her at her restaurant, and she, I had a videographer, and I kept offering her breaks, saying, Mrs. Chase, wouldn't you like to take a rest now? Would you like some water? She said no. She kept going for hours. The videographer and I are passing out over on the side, but she was, she was going, and she's still going today. She's a little bit slower, but she's still cooking in her restaurant. And she said a couple things. One, she said, 
who knew? And it's funny, the New York Times picked up on this earlier this year. She said, who knew you could change the world over a bowl of gumbo? June Jackson Christmas. This picture was taken the day after uh, young people were killed, I believe three in Jackson State College. June Jackson Christmas, Dr. June Jackson Christmas is a psychiatrist. She was already attending the American Psychiatric Association and in that meeting they're trying to figure out what in the heck is going on. June Jackson Christmas and her husband never worked in the South, but they opened up their townhouse in New York City to civil rights workers. They raised money, they provided uh, places for them to stay, they, she even provided counseling because they said, Dr. Christmas, we're down here. Nobody talked about post-traumatic stress then. Well, we're down here, we need, we need some rest, we need a break, we need someone to talk to. She provided that. She was one of the first black women to graduate from Vassar and they laud her now as, as she should have been lauded. This is Dr. Christmas taken last year. She, I think she was about 93 or 94. Don't be jealous. I told, that's the way she looks now. And I always say that a life of social justice activism, well, you wind up looking like that. Eileen Hernandez is the only person of the nine women I interviewed who died before this book was published. She died about a little over a year ago. And she led student protests at Howard University. People forget Howard University was in the South, is in the South, below the Mason-Dixon line. And they were, they were also had issues of public accommodation, all this sort of thing. So she did that when she was in college. She later became a labor uh, activist and leader. And she was, became, also became the first and I think only African-American president of the National Organization for Women. She quit now when they, after she had been the president, when somehow they figured out it was okay to present an all-white slate for officers. She thought, no, this could not be. So she moved to California and maintained her activism, and she did, and she did labor organizing, not just here, but abroad. Judy Richardson, right there, the representing the young people of SNCC. Judy, among other things, ran the, do you remember, does anyone remember the wide area telephone service line, the Watts line? Okay. And she ran that line, and that line was literally a lifeline for civil rights workers because what they did, people would go in the rural areas or even the urban areas, and then they would need to call in at night so people would know that they were still alive these are dangerous times. Judy's job was to take the reports and sometimes, through tears, contact the FBI. She would have to contact the FBI. And she talks about her frustration at being in some places where there was terror going on and the FBI agents would not intercede at all because they didn't want to blow their cover. She was very frustrated with that. This is Judy last year, the year before, receiving an award from the city of Boston. Later she started, she co-founded a black bookstore, at that time the largest black-owned bookstore in the country, Drum and Spear Bookstore in Washington, D.C. Then she became the associate producer for Eyes on the Prize, and she's partially responsible for that name. Because Henry Hampton, I think, wanted to say something, America, I love you madly, and she said no. And so she fought for a title that, that became 
that evolved into the title that we know. She, like many of the women, very humble. She said to me, why do you want to interview me? I, I didn't do anything special. And I said, I beg to differ with you. And besides, it's my book. <laughs> Diane Nash. Diane Nash was a student leader in Nashville, Tennessee, at Fisk University from Chicago. She was considered so trustworthy and specific. And her, the word she always use, uses is diligence. And the reason she became the head, there were two guys who were head of the student movement, and they would go out for various meetings and things, and they would come back, and they were supposed to report to a group like this. And they'd go, oh, well, you know, we did this, and they were not very specific. And everybody knew how specific Diane was. And so they encouraged her to become head of that. She, one of the things that, that's usually talked about when you see various documentaries or things on the civil rights movement or the Freedom Riders is the fact that she took over the Freedom Ride when the Congress on Racial Equality bus was attacked and people were so severely beaten that they could not continue. And Diane Nash said, if we let violence stop us now, we'll never succeed. She passionately, passionately believes in nonviolence. She, after her, the time of the civil rights movement, she moved back to her hometown of Chicago, this is a relatively recent photo, where she became a tenant organizer. And she, she's a wonderful person. She is really so specific. I, she only talked to me because I had to get someone else to be my third party endorser. So, the, so Ivanhoe Donaldson, who worked very hard, most people know him from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and he knew me, he knew, knew my work. I met her, but of course she was Diane Nash, and I was not. So, but he knew me, knew me, and he said he convinced her to to talk to me for a while. But it was so funny. I tell this story because I love it. She said, "I'll give you 15 minutes," and I said, "Okay, I'll take whatever time I get." So we're talking. I look at my stopwatch and I go, "Oh, I'm so sorry." I said, "I don't want to impose." It's. I said, "We're at 15 minutes," and she said without hostility or anything, but very matter of fact, it's 18 minutes. <laughs> and so we wrapped it up. And so I, I, I love her because that shows you how real people are. That's Kathleen Cleaver. As I say, particularly to the young people, and those of you who may or may not have seen the Black Panther, she was a real Black Panther. And she and her then-husband, Eldridge Cleaver, on the lam from the FBI, uh, first of all, you know, they did all the good work, the, the, the breakfast programs and educational programs. You have to remember, there were community programs that the Black Panthers did. You, people see, think of them with the berets and the leather jackets and things like that, and they forget about the programs that they did. Kathleen Cleaver is absolutely magnificent. She came back from, I think, four years in exile. They had two children abroad. Uh, her, part of her background was that she grew up in Tuskegee, Alabama. Her father was an agricultural specialist, and he was sent abroad when she was very young with the, with the U.S. aid program. Uh, and so she spent a lot of time in countries that had people of color as leaders in Africa and, India and Asia. And so she said white supremacy never had a chance with her. It was over before it even started. So Kathleen Cleaver, when she came back, she went to, she graduated summa cum laude, undergraduate, 
cum laude law school, and she then clerked for a very brave federal district judge who would hire a Black Panther, the late Leon Higginbotham. Here is Kathleen Cleaver. And it's interesting, several women said to me, is Kathleen Cleaver still as gorgeous as she once was? And I said, yeah, she is. And she's as nice as can be. She gave me a full day. She allowed me to talk to her while she was entertaining her grandchildren from the Sudan. Now, you grandparents know that's precious time. And so I, I said for all these women, I just wanted to do right by them. Gay McDougal. Gay was the first black student to integrate the all-women's college, Agnes Scott College, outside of Atlanta, Georgia. She was the only one, the first one they accepted, and the only one. Can you imagine the, the isolation that she had? She, after two years, she did transfer. She went to Bennington and later on became an um, anti-apartheid leader in Washington, D.C. She helped organize all of those anti-apartheid protests. She, in her own right, and then with her late husband, John Payton. And so she's fabulous. And so when she, when Nelson Mandela voted, this is, uh, this is a famous photo. When Nelson Mandela voted for the first time, he wanted Gay McDougal by his side. There she is. And there she is today. She also went to law school, and she's now a professor. And she was one of the women who, she was the first, I think, to be on the Committee for the End of Racial Discrimination at the United Nations. Fantastic person. Gloria Richardson. Now, I told you before about how Diane Nash was passionately nonviolent. Mrs. Richardson was like, no. She was not, she was nonviolent as a tactic. She did not believe in it passionately. She believed like in self-defense. And she, and her daughter, in fact, had to calm her down. She got involved in the civil rights movement to support her daughter, who was a teenager, and others. And her daughter, in fact, told her mother to get out of the line because she was tripping white people when they were walking by. And the daughter said, Mom, that's not what we're, that's not what we're supposed to do. So Mrs. Richardson tells the story, and she laughs about it. This story is when the National Guard was sent to sort of quell the riots. There were no riots by black people in uh, Cambridge, Maryland. And some National Guardsmen, you can see, pointed a gun at her, and she just swatted it away. She was totally offended that anyone would do something like that to her. And she's like that to this day in her 90s. And there she is. That's a picture taken last year when at the 50th anniversary of uh, the Cambridge movement, she was honored by the city. And she said she never thought that, that she would see that particular day. And there she is looking at a higher authority. Merle Evers. I'm going to end pretty much with uh, an excerpt from the chapter of Merle Evers. This picture was taken after the assassination of her husband, Medgar. And there are their um, three children. A little background about Mrs. Evers. Born in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1933, Merle Beasley was raised by her aunt and grandmother. When she was 17 and a student at Alcorn A&M College in Lorman, Mississippi, she met her future husband, Medgar Evers. They married when she was 18. 
When Medgar Evers was appointed the first NAACP field secretary in the state of Mississippi in 1954, he negotiated a paid position for Murley as the office's secretary. They were basically the office. Their home was firebombed in 1962. In June 1963, Medgar Evers was assassinated in their driveway. Widowed with three small children, Murley Evers stayed in their home for a year where the driveway was an emotionally intense daily reminder of her husband's death. In the summer of 1964, she addressed the NAACP convention at a time when civil rights workers, let's lift up their names, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner, were missing and not yet discovered murdered. And as with discovering the body of Emmett Till, they found other bodies as they dredged for these. Mrs. Evers later moved to California. At the age of 31, she went back to college, working part-time, and graduated from Pomona College in 1968 with a degree in sociology. Remember, she had three small kids at the time. She vigilantly pursued justice for the murder of her husband, a three-decade commitment that ended when the killer was convicted in 1994. You notice I don't mention his name. The Evers home is now a national landmark on a quiet, unassuming residential street. Its location brings into sharp focus the terror that was part of the everyday lives of African-American leaders during the Civil Rights Movement. Mrs. Evers today remains beautiful, gracious, grateful, and propelled by an invisible life force, a mixture of compassion, curiosity, and righteous anger. Her candor and openness can shock one expecting to encounter a martyr or a saint. She is defiantly a whole person. For African Americans, preserving personhood is itself an accomplishment. In her own words, this is a part of the chapter I adapted for The Nation magazine, online and in your magazine now. Mrs. Evers' words. I was very fortunate to be surrounded by people who loved me dearly. My grandmother and my aunt told me I could accomplish anything I set my mind to do, as long as I stayed within the boundaries of what society had for me. Then Medic came along and said, you can do whatever you want to do, but keep those boundaries out of the way. You never stop dreaming for something higher and better. Medgar was a veteran of World War II, as was my father. When Medgar returned to Mississippi, he decided to confront the rapid prejudice and racism. I came along and learned as we moved forward in the work in the Mississippi Delta and then later in Jackson, Mississippi. Medgar and I moved first to a town called Mound Bayou, formed by former slaves. Medgar was the first known African-American to apply for admission to the University of Mississippi. Now, some sharp-eyed, this is an aside, fact-checker at the nation found some other person said, well, maybe he was, that he, perhaps he was the second, but Mrs. Evers 
I thought it was the first, and so I've kept that in, although the nation, you'll see if you read it, says the second. Whatever the accomplishment, the, the willingness to do that is still the same. He applied to the law school at Ole Miss. He went to visit with Dr. E.J. Stringer, president of the NAACP Mississippi State Conference, to talk about the NAACP supporting him in the suit for admittance. Instead, they talked him into taking the position as the first field secretary for the NAACP and opening an office in Jackson. A very, very interesting time. It was not only typing, organizing events or celebrations, or even the sad things to acknowledge people who had been hurt, who had been killed. I did research for his speeches. I even wrote some of them. We were behind the cotton curtain because you could not get information out to the wire service that you could in any other part of the country. It meant being concise with what you reported and sending that information to the NAACP office in New York City. And you did it, any young people here, by telegram. I was a welcoming committee to people who came in. Everyone visited our house. Our house was so small, but we always found a place. I think of Thurgood Marshall, Constance Baker Motley, attorney Derek Bell. What a terrible time I had trying to balance a budget of $25 every two weeks, feeding and housing people. But it was our home. Many of us bonded. There are a few of us still around. We have been there. It was an exciting but frightening time. Because you stared at death every day. And you walked. And death walked along with you. But there was always hope. And there were always people who surrounded you to give you a sense of purpose. You try to prepare. You do a little role playing. I personally would put myself in a position mentally where I had just lost my husband. I knew it was coming. I recall a conversation with Medgar not too long before his assassination. I said to him, I can't live without you. I can't make it without you. And he looked at me and said, you're much stronger than you think you are. You will be okay. You must believe it. Today, when I visit my former home, I can still see the blood. We needed to get away from that place. Our eldest son, Daryl Kenyatta, reached a point where he refused to eat. He would not study. He would not talk. My daughter would go to bed every night with her dad's picture, holding it very tight. The youngest one, Van, who was three, would go to bed with this little rifle. I knew we could no longer live in that house. A woman who was lonely and afraid, but one who was determined to make it. Everything that I did was what I thought Medgar would have wanted. And the promises I made to him the night before he was killed. My grandmother said to me, you run as far away from Mississippi as you could get without going into the ocean. California became home, and until this day, it still is. I summarize as best I can the character 
of the women in these books. To me, they represent authenticity, courage, and purpose, but obviously much, much more. I quote Elaine Jones when I say, why, why African-American women? What's my passion? What's my passion on that? Elaine Jones, a native of Norfolk, Virginia, in 1970 became the first African-American woman to graduate from the University of Virginia School of Law and later the first woman president and director counsel of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. She says of black women in the civil rights movement, and I wish I could really capture her voice. The point is that no one did what we do. Black women believe in fundamental fairness. We know the difference between right and wrong. That is a way of finding our way and inspiring others. My book, Lighting the Fires of Freedom, is unabashedly a love letter to women in the movement and to the movement itself. I also want to acknowledge that there are a number of books by and about black women on the civil rights movement by an impressive group of writers and scholars, including Betty Collier Thomas, Janetta B. Cole, Beverly Guy Sheftal, Barbara Clark Hine, Charlene Hunter Galt, and Paula Giddens, and many more. The rich history of women involved in the civil rights movement indicates that there are many stories that remain to be told and to be told from different perspectives. Reclaiming that herstory is a portal to recognizing the vibrancy and authenticity of African-American women's leadership. Rashad Robinson, one of my favorite people in the entire world, young man, executive director of colorforchange.org, writes about the women in Lighting the Fires of Freedom. These stories of perseverance, love, loss, inspiration, and strategy add to the songbook of the civil rights era, allowing us to hear and model our newly revived movement for justice on the sharp, passionate, and unforgettable voices of these women whose ideas were so transformative. Yes, Rashad. The stories of these remarkable women serve as instruction for the work that still must be done to make real the ideals of this nation. Join with me. Deep in my heart, I do believe that we shall overcome someday. Thank you. And please speak up. Up with greater exposure, and like doing a, a mini, a 
Okay, doing a mini-series or a documentary or something like that for videos, something to be shown in schools, maybe in the public airway or something like that, maybe pictures, maybe actual sound bites and pictures stories so that's what I'm very impressed what do you see in the future coming thank you well thank you that's a great question one of the things that I did I did I wasn't able to video all of the women I interviewed but I interviewed some and so I'm going to try to put those in some sort of miniseries maybe even on even online but because I think that their their full their full interviews are really very powerful I, I had I was privileged to interview most of the people, all but the one who gave me the 15 minutes. But she, she's so organized. She, she's one of those people you just put the mic in front of and ask a, ask a couple questions, and she gives you all the information she needs. So she was fabulous. But I think to hear the women speak in their own voices, and what I say is that they allowed me to keep in their lyricisms, their cadences, their colloquialisms. Because you know, when you say something and then you put it in writing, you go, mm, let me try to change that because you, you're somehow driven by semicolons. You want to do something that, that's not important. And so I begged them. I said, please, let me keep it in the way you said it. And they were kind enough to do that. But yes, and I think, the, but the other thing, too, is I want to encourage other people to write about this. I think that my, one of the things that I feel that I'm privileged to do is, is set a spark myself about it because I was able to, I was able to do these interviews I was able to get them uh, get them published but I want other people to do it because there's a lot there I spent this was also the subject of my dissertation I grew it um, I spent a lot of time on my on my dissertation so there's a lot more material uh, there but it's not done this it's not done this way. It's, you know, I've done snatches of people's interviews. Here you have it more in, the, in their particular chapter, more in, the, in whole cloth. So you get more of a, more of a sense of the, of the person. They're not just illustrating one of my academic points. And so that's why, that's why I'm very excited about my I'm excited about my own book, and I can be because it's not me, it's these women. But thank you, that's a great idea, and I hope to be able to do that. Uh, Dr. Bell, I'd like to thank you for being here. My pleasure. And part of the reason that I'm here is not only to learn about these heroes, many of them who I didn't know anything about, but also <clears throat> as an activist, sometimes I know myself better than anyone. And sometimes I feel the deep pain of living in a country that does not recognize us as people of color. And sometimes that pain, um, I need to be by myself to deal with that. But I come here to hear the many speakers that the library offers us, and it helps me to kind of hear what you say and to use your words as a kind of salve to wipe away at least part of that pain. Because I believe that most of us African Americans suffer from some part of post-traumatic stress syndrome, and many of us aren't even aware of that. Mm -hmm. And when I think about what's going on in this country, but to put it exactly with quote-unquote black-on-black crime, one of the things that I have come to believe 
is that we are wasting our energy and our time. I believe that we need to come inside of the different communities across America and have people such as yourself, myself, and other people as well who could come in and teach and support and to say, we know what you're going through and we care about you so that we can help mothers and fathers to learn how to be mothers and fathers. So we can teach people that it's possible to learn how to like yourself and eventually to get to the point where you can love yourself because if I don't care about myself, I can't care about you. I can't care well, I about you. I can't care about you. And so thank you for being here because you have offered me the spark of hope that I need to keep on keeping on. Thank, thank you. you. My, my late husband, Derek Bell, some of you may know of him, professor, first uh, tenured African-American professor at Harvard Law School, among other things. But before he was that, he, he managed, I don't know how he did it, 300 school desegregation cases. He worked with Constance Baker Motley on the University of Georgia, University of Mississippi. And what Derek and I always said was that we found joy in the midst of the struggle. And we always concentrated on that too. Not denying the stress. You know, uh, the, the great uh, Dr. Price Cobbs uh, talked about that for many, many years ago and people didn't really pay attention to the psychic energy it takes to be part of an oppressed group. And so, but even with all that, you know, you have, we, we do the work, join the struggle, we engage, but we find joy. We laugh, we talk and dance. I was at a conference a few years ago and everybody was so serious and I said, they expected some great uh, intellectual comment. They said, well, what do you think? I said, I think we need to dance more. And they're looking at me. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> that was that was an interesting comment, but I really do. Yes. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure hearing you share the stories. I also appreciate the fact that you opened with a song. We are part of the artists that make up America, the artistic fabric, and all of the arts blend into what, and you just mentioned the dance, and so the singing, the Negro or the African-American spiritual, very important because those were the songs that brought us through, that helped us to get through that period. And still, we sing them, and they have that meaning. And I certainly appreciate you and all of the ancestors women ancestors that you shared. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I think just a couple more. Uh, I just want to make sure that everybody here knows that there's a little gem of a civil rights museum up on Utah Place uh, named after Lily Mae Carroll Jackson. And she and her daughter, Juanita Jackson Mitchell, were both yes. very important civil rights leaders in Baltimore. And, well, not to, not to um, um, omit people, I can't name everybody, but Anolia McMillan was also, I think she, 
She was active into her 90s as president of the uh, NAACP in Maryland. So we've had some fine women leaders here, and that museum really captures their activity and, and many other uh, civil rights activists. Anyone else? Well, <coughs> can I? The museum is in the 1300 block of Utah Street. It's directly across from the Masonic Lodge. So in case anyone is interested, you can go online, you can call in, but it's a great place to find out more about the mother of civil rights here in Baltimore and who led the NAACP. But I, wanted, I wanted to just go back and say a couple things about, about the women who uh, I talked to, and I think this is uh, for, women, for the women across the board, is that they continued to work for human rights. And some people, some people have said, had we named this, and some people tried to name it the Human Rights Movement rather than Civil Rights Movement, but we could, could not get support. There's a great book saying uh, that was written by a scholar called Eyes Off the Prize about people in the late 40s and 50s who wanted to join with the international human rights movement, but they couldn't get support here, here to do that. So it was focused on civil rights, which is still still human rights, but the thing about these women, they continue to do work for the rest of their lives, and those who are still alive are still doing things. And so I always say they're not museum pieces. They're not, pe they're not people who can uh, be dusted off in February for Black History Month or March for Women's History Month. And I also say that they are not cookie-cutter heroines. They are real people living real lives. They are iconic but they also represent many other people who have brought us over. You know, it's like, how we got over. And so they helped us get over, and we owe them a great deal of gratitude. Thank you very much. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.